You're listening to City Church Long Beach Sermons Podcast. You can visit us at citychurchlongbeach.org. Glad you can all be here. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Brenna Rubio, and I'm one of the co-pastors here at City Church of Long Beach, where we are a radically welcoming community on the journey towards Jesus, joining him in the renewal of all things. And you guys are a part of that just by being here. Uh, I was sitting and thinking while we were singing, I just love the power of music on a Sunday morning just to help us transition into this space because so much has gone on often, whether it's already this morning, you know, um, maybe you've already gotten into some fights with people that you live with. I know some of you that has happened uh, already. Um, Some of you had had a beautiful morning and like, you know, you well, some of you are still in the car right now, kind of listening in on Zoom as you're like, you know, kind of finger combing your hair on your way to church. That's great. Some of you are in bed on Zoom. Welcome, Zoom folks. We're so glad that you're here too. But the reality is we're all coming in from different places. Um, and so just the power of music to help us to start to just kind of settle and to get in touch with some parts of ourselves that we don't always let ourselves experience in the hustle and bustle of the regular week. So yeah, just glad that we get to experience that here together and and glad for everything we're gonna get to experience this morning in this time and in this place. We love to pray for our kids before they head out for their story and craft and all the fun that they get to uh, get up to this morning one of my favorite people in the world, uh, my eldest kid, Dia Rubio, is going to come pray for the kids. Uh, yeah, welcome, Dia. Um, and Dia actually is one of our regular volunteers with the kids ministry, and so is going to be heading out with the kids. But also, I asked Dia if they would talk just a little bit about the artwork that they've been adding to weekly for us and kind of explain what, do the artwork first. Yeah. Hi, um, I'm Dia. So, yeah, I've been doing the art that's been up here every week. It's not original. I'm working off a reference. But yeah, so I've been adding on Saturday nights or Sunday mornings. So yeah, this week I added the goblet imagery. Last week was the leaf. So it's just been a little fun project I've been doing over the past month or so. And the goblet for this week is really in remembrance. We'll especially be thinking of it as we come to the communion table later. But there's so many many images of wine being poured out and drinks being poured and coming to the table. Yeah. Okay, so kids, let's pray. So, okay, God, thanks for all these great kids in here. I'm related to some of them. Some of them I've known for a very long time. They're all very cool. So keep them safe as they go into their week. And also want to pray for the kids of this school and of this neighborhood. I hope that you keep them safe as they go into their next week. And honestly, I pray for the safety of kids everywhere from the threat of gun violence that has been just so present over the past couple months. And I pray for all the queer and trans kids like me who just seem to end up at the center of hate again and again now and then. Right now, as Florida is trying to strengthen their don't say gay law. So I hope that you give us all resilience and strength to get through this week. Amen. And kids can come out. little sisterly love there. Got the thumbs up. Um, We have such a privilege 
this morning. Um, our friend Katie White is going to be preaching for us this morning. If you would give Katie a big welcome. I know Katie is going to tell you all about it, um, but she has just an incredible and an incredibly hard job. Come on up, Katie. Um, leading a medical ministry down at Skid Row. So uh, with that, Katie combines not only her incredible skills as a doctor, as an administrator, but also just as a very heartfelt and humble follower of Jesus. So thank you so much, Katie, for sharing with us. Thank you, Brenna. Can I hear me, hear me okay? Okay. Um, hi, City Church. It's a privilege to be here. Uh, I gave this a, a, a similar version of this talk a few weeks ago to a large group of healthcare professionals who are devoted to working in marginalized communities. And I think of that as a spiritual home for me. Uh, and in the same way, I appreciate the way you all have been spiritual family to me. So it's a joy to be here. Uh, this morning, I was listening to a devotion and today's Palm Sunday. And just thinking about uh, Jesus's entry to Jerusalem on a road, right? And the story of Palm Sunday is Jesus gets a donkey and comes on the road and they lay out palm branches for him. And they kind of have this expectation that he's gonna come in and take over as king. And instead, what a lot of us know to be the story is instead he comes into the city and ends up uh, being accused and killed in a very sort of horrific uh, way on a cross. And we think about that this week and Holy Week and on Good Friday. And then on Sunday, we celebrate that he actually rose again. But I thought about that road and about the surprise that we expected a king and we got a suffering servant. And so today, in a similar way, we're just going to think in a different way about a road. And you know, as I think about Jesus in the surprise of him coming in and expecting him to be king, and instead he humbled himself and became a servant, you know, there's something in there about how he loves us and how he calls us to love. So about five months ago, right here in this room, I heard a sermon uh, related to the book of Jonah. I don't know if you guys remember, we kind of talked about Jonah as like the anti-hero and how scripture often lifts up unexpected people as heroes. And I thought that week about how Jesus puts people in my life and in our life that we don't expect who love well. And I thought about my patient, Yvette. Yvette is an older African-American woman. She has a pretty significant learning disability and she never really learned how to read. She has high blood pressure, she has osteoporosis, thinning of the bones, and she hardly ever complains even though her arthritis is so bad that she has a hard time walking in and out of the exam room. She's not one of my more complex patients, uh, but I've had to be very patient with her and spend more time with her over the past year in particular because she had a, a growth in her neck that was causing her calcium levels in her blood to be really high. And so she developed this bone problem and she needed to go to a special specialist. We call it a tertiary specialist uh, for a complicated surgery. And due to the difficulty Yvette has in navigating the system, understanding things, I mean, let's be honest, we all have difficulty navigating the healthcare system, um, but it just took her a while to know if she, where she was supposed to go. And even if she went, it took me about a year to get her in for this needed surgery. So I've had to be really patient and persistent with her. 
but she has always remained very kind to me. She's one of those rare patients who occasionally will just ask me, Doctor, how are you doing? I happen to have a telephone visit with her that same week that I heard the sermon about Jonah, so it's all coming back, um, five months ago. And I remember the date really well. It was October 27th was the day I talked to her because so many things had happened to me the week before. This was a crucial visit with a vet because she was about to go in for her surgery. She didn't really know where to go, and I had to talk to her in great detail and slowness about the details of the plan and how to get there. But even on the telephone, when I was rushed, maybe she discerned something in her spirit about me because she asked me, how have you been doing, doctor? And I just started crying on the phone. You see, that very week, six days prior, Bill's mom had been placed on hospice. Two days after that, my daughter got her jaw badly broken by being kicked in the face at a soccer game. And one day after the soccer incident, I had a surgery, so I was really bummed that I couldn't be there for her surgery. In fact, it was this very day that I'm talking to Yvette that my daughter's having her surgery, and I'm sitting here going, why am I seeing patients on the phone when my daughter's having surgery? Um, but I just felt seen. When she stopped and asked me that question, as I was alone at home, recovering, working, here was my patient caring for me. I felt loved by her, by God. So we're going to read a story right now about another hero who loved. I'm going to invite up Jorge Salmeron to read the scripture from Luke. Come on up, Jorge. Yeah, I think you just... Okay. Tell me if I'm wrong, is that right? <laughs> Everybody stand, please. Oh, yeah, yeah. sorry. <laughs> if you would like to stand, you You're may like... stand. <laughs> On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it, he answered. Love the Lord, your God, with all your heart with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. He answered correctly. Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to direct Jericho. When he was attacked by the robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged him, his wounds, pouring oil and wine 
Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, and then and gave them to the inner to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into his into the hands of the robber? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Thank you. Thanks be to God. This is the word of God. <laughs> People of God, this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. All right, I'm getting, I'm getting it together here. Um, so maybe if you could put up the next slide with just the, the road on it. Um, this is a picture of the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. I happen to be married to someone who helps me find pictures for sermons and stuff. So Bill hooked me up. Um, this is a windy downhill road that travels kind of from a very high place where the temple is in Jerusalem down to Jericho, which is on you know, at the shore level. Um, and it has a lot of steep, steep ravines, twists and turns. Even today, it's thought to be a dangerous road. But at the time of this story, it was particularly dangerous. So it's actually not surprising that the crime described in the story that Jesus is telling happened on happen on this road. And I just, I kind of want us to think about this road today. Uh, a few years ago, I heard a pastor from inner city of Chicago talk about um, when you think of Bible stories, uh, to think about your straight street version. And I think of that as the modern remix. Uh, like what is your version of the road that they're talking about in this picture? So. I, I'm going to be asking you and me over the time today, like, what is your Jericho Road? What is my Jericho Road? So my Jericho Road right now, professionally, if you want to put up the next slide, is Joshua House Health Center. So Joshua House Health Center is the mothership clinic of the place where I work, and it's located in Skid Row. How many people here have ever been to or seen Skid Row? So a lot of us, and when I gave the talk a few weeks ago, people were like, they kind of had heard of it, but they hadn't been there. Um, but Skid Row is the homeless hub of Los Angeles, and thousands of people actually live, sleep, survive on the sidewalks. And there's a disproportionate amount of drug use, a lot of severe mental illness, a lot of violence. This picture actually here was probably soon after one of the street sweepings that occasionally happen, because there are actually usually many more tents uh, blocking, blocking this wall. And in fact, when I come out of the parking structure and walk to the front door, a lot of times our fire exit is blocked by tents and people are lying there. And I, it's hard to tell if they, they're just sleeping or high. Um, in fact, a, the, a couple weeks uh, before I gave the talk to the group, to the large group a couple weeks ago, we had had two overdoses in one day right in front of our clinic out on the street. They actually call this block in front of our clinic fentanyl row because there's so much fentanyl use. People who live on the streets in Skid Row are regularly assaulted by others and come into our clinic for care. 
So my Jericho Road version, or my straight street version of this Jericho Road story is, is something that we staff at our clinic take precautions to ensure doesn't happen, but we know it could. A woman was walking near here in Skid Row when she was mugged. Her phone was stolen. She was beaten up. She was left on the sidewalk. This Jericho Road story is very close to home for me. So what is your Jericho Road? I want us all to, th to think about the different characters in the story and who do we identify with. So let's look at the first person, the expert in the law, who came to ask Jesus the question. The writer says he was trying to test Jesus. But he actually initiated the conversation with Jesus. He asked Jesus, what does it take to inherit eternal life? So it seems like he wants eternal life, right? I actually like how Jesus responds and invites his perspective. He says, what do you how do you read in the law? What do you read? And this expert has actually figured out what is the most important thing in the scriptures, to love God and love neighbor. And he shares these two great commandments. And Jesus says, great, you're right. Do this and you will live. But then the expert asks the question that leads to the loaded answer. And who is my neighbor? Scripture says he was trying to justify himself. And maybe he did want to make sure he had all the right answers. But he asked Jesus to show him how. And I know that I, in many ways, identify with this expert of the law. And maybe some of you guys too, because we kind of know a lot of the answers about how to live, you know, how to be nice to one another. We may want to be rewarded in life, but are we willing to ask Jesus, like, what does this look like in my life? Are we willing to ask Jesus that follow-up question? Who is my neighbor? Jesus honors his question, and when he presses him, he tells the, the follow-up more shocking story. So as the story goes on, Jesus talks about the person in the road, and there are three people who pass by. The person was on a dangerous road. He, he, she got attacked, left for dead almost, and the first people to pass are a priest and then a Levite. So they were sort of the religious people of the day, and they were expected to do the right thing. The priest, maybe he knew the law, which was, at the time, the Jewish law, so I've been told, is if you touch a dead body, you're unclean for seven days. So maybe he's like, well, if I touch this person, I can't do my job, so I'm going to just pass right by. And the Levite is someone who helps a priest, so maybe they're also trying to follow the law. But bottom line, they don't stop. They pass right by. But what strikes me about this story is I actually don't think Jesus wants to focus on the priest or the Levite. His focus is on the Samaritan. So the Samaritan is seen by an out, as an outsider by Jewish people. Samaritans were not considered to be ethnically pure. In the previous chapter before this, in chapter 9 of Luke, it talks about the Samaritan opposition to Jesus. And Jesus' disciples say, hey, you want us to rain down fire on them? And Jesus is like, no. I think we heard a story a few weeks ago about a Samaritan woman at the well. Samaritan were clearly thought to be as outsiders. They were despised by Jews. 
They were not welcomed into their homes. They were cursed in the synagogues. So the rational, understandable thing for someone who has been excluded by the society around him to do is to pass by. But he doesn't. He is the hero. This outsider, this Samaritan, he's the only one to stop. Not only does he stop, he bandages the guy's wounds, he puts on what was considered to be medicine at the time, it's a little weird, but wine, oil, okay. Um, he puts him on his own donkey, he brought him somewhere to stay, he paid for his stay, he watched him overnight, and then he offered to pay for further costs of caring for him. So in my Jericho Road version, it's the local fentanyl dealer, stops in the street, sees the woman who's had her, who's had her phone stolen, who's beaten up, he brings some food, some water. He brings wound care supplies for her. He calls the paramedics. He stays with her. He goes with her to the hospital. He talks with her family. He follows up with her afterward. How many of us have read this story and felt guilty for being like the priest? Or like the Levite and not, and not stopping? But what if Jesus is not actually trying to make us sit in guilt? But showing us someone who, who just loves well and calls us to action in our own Jericho Road, where we are? What if Jesus is giving us a clue about how to love people who might be hard to love? For me, one way that I have had to stop, so to speak, on my Jericho Road is to love people as a, as a doctor, to love patients who are difficult to love. So I have this one patient, Jose. He's an older gentleman. He's a Spanish pastor. Um, he actually developed cirrhosis for liver failure fairly recently from his distant past history of heavy drinking. And he's kind of angry at the world now. He's angry that he can't do his normal pastoral work. When he was doing his usual work, he didn't take care of himself. He worked all hours of the night. He had diabetes, and I would talk to him about his, how his sugar was really out of control, and you know, it would be good for him to like, eat at regular times and take his medicine. But he was like, I need to do the work of the Lord. Now he's barely mobile. He's not particularly gracious with his wife, or to our staff, or sometimes to me. He's actually really disappointed with how his life is wrapping up. I kind of expect more of him, because he's a religious leader. But I take a deep breath when I enter the room. I ask God for patience as he lists off his complaints. I just saw him the other recent, very recently, and he had all sorts of questions about why he has this symptom, that symptom, the other symptom. I just looked at him and I said, I don't know. He's like, you're supposed to know, doctor. And I said, I'm not God. He said, that's true, you're not. <laughs> But when I dig deep, I actually feel empathy for him because he's not dying the way he wanted to die. He's not dying in strength. He's grieving his loss of authority, his loss of power. And over these two difficult years, even though I've said some hard things to him, he's actually occasionally nice to me. Loving him is actually listening. Sitting with him, praying for him and appreciating our shared humanity. I think the other area for me that is difficult for me to be a good neighbor is caring for staff. 
in, our, in the clinic where I work. I have a leadership role in our clinic, and I think it's so important to care for our staff. Our staff, as you have seen in this picture of the Skid Row Clinic, it's very tough work. Um, we see stuff suffering all the time. And I have said to our provider team, who I oversee, that I would die on the hill of looking out for their well-being. I care deeply about loving them, but I fail regularly. In the past few months, I have spoken words too sharply. As a leader, it gets lonely sometimes, because when things are not as good as they could be, it's partly my fault, and it's partly my responsibility to make it better, and it is. But in my desire to do things right, sometimes I'm blind to the critical tone I bring into a conversation, in emails, on the phone, even in person. I've been insensitive to the downward look of a colleague who has felt shamed. I have assumed I knew the answer to how to improve something, rather than asking on-the-ground staff what are their ideas to make things better. I've been so focused at times on how to execute our goals that I've come across as using others, rather than being present to what people are doing now and fully appreciating them. At times, I have felt alone in the need for me to be strong and hold things together because we have so many crises, overwhelming needs, threats to our safety. It's hard for me to stop, to reach out, to let a colleague know I need them, to ask for their prayers or support. I think in particular, I think about my role in terms of privilege and race. You may or may not have noticed, but I am a white person. Um, and I, since I really got involved in this group that I spoke to a couple weeks, a couple weeks ago, CCHF, um, I have been thinking, this is over the past, I don't know, 30 years, thinking a lot about the role of, of race and privilege and our history in this country of structural racism the false narrative of white supremacy, anti-blackness that's so pervasive in our world, and even in my own heart at times. And it grieves me, and yet it's important for me to face the truth. I do have privilege. How do I use that privilege? The morning I was giving this talk a few weeks ago, I feel like God woke me up at four in the morning and kind of gave me an image of this, a story of a stormy sea. Jesus tells a lot of stories about storms, and I feel like right now in the workplace, I'm in the middle of, of a lot of storms. There's just a lot of stuff going on, a lot of hard things. So I am in the stormy sea, but I actually, myself personally, am in a powerboat. It may feel to me like the boat is off because I'm swaying in the waves, but I am in that powerboat. At any moment, I could take the key and turn it on and swim away and ride away in the powerboat. But there's people next to me who are either straining at the oars in a rowboat or in the ocean without a boat at all. And I am called to invite people onto the boat who have not had this kind of privilege, who have been excluded. Not just to get on the boat, 
but I'm supposed to give them the keys and let them drive the boat. And not just let them drive the boat, but surrender some power and resources so that they can own the boat. That's the justice that I'm called to be a part of. But as a white person with privilege, with a presumption of power and authority over, over years, I have hurt people without knowing it at the time. I have bowled people over with my convictions about what to do without me acknowledging my lens and inviting the perspective and leadership of others. And this has had the impact at times of perpetuating the lie that whiteness or white culture is somehow normal, standard, or better. And I grieve this. So for me, being a neighbor is apologizing. It's owning my responsibility for things that could have been led better. It's asking another person how my words or actions impacted them. And it's waiting and listening for them to respond. Sometimes being a neighbor in the workplace has meant being willing to enter into conflict, into difficult conversations, in which I acknowledge the impact of other people's actions as well, because it has harmed someone in the process. This type of neighboring is really hard. And I sometimes feel like an outsider in these conversations because I don't know all the rules of how to make things right in different cultural and work contexts. So if I could summarize, kind of the things that I'm learning really through failure about how to be a good neighbor in the workplace, especially with colleagues, how to love others, but it does apply to many situations. It is, and if you want to put up that, I think there's a slide with a list of things about being a good neighbor. It means exploring difference with curiosity, not criticism. It means stopping and appreciating others. Don't just use others. It means honoring others and not overpowering others. It's being present to what is now rather than focused on what is next. It's being interdependent and vulnerable and not independent and strong. It's being self-aware, it's owning my mistakes, not being defensive about my cultural insensitivity or blind to the existence of false narratives or racial hierarchy all around me. So let us reflect for a moment. Is there a Jose, someone maybe you serve or have served that you could be a better neighbor to? Is there a colleague, a coworker, maybe a family member who you've hurt or might be hurting? Is there someone who you've been insensitive to or critical or been unwilling to enter into a messy conversation with? Can you humbly move in love toward that person? But neighbor love is not just what we're called to give, it's actually what we're privileged to receive. I want to share a quote from my favorite, one of my favorite authors, Henry Nouwen. When Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan to answer the question, who is my neighbor? He ends the parable by asking, which do you think proved himself a neighbor to the man who fell into the bandit's hands? The neighbor, Jesus makes clear, is not the poor man laying on the side of the street, stripped, beaten, and half dead, 
but the Samaritan, who crossed the road, bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, lifting them onto him onto his own mount and taking him to an inn and looking after him. My neighbor is the one who crosses the road for me. Jesus repeatedly draws our attention to religious outsiders as unexpected heroes and not just this good Samaritan in the story. There are so many in, this, in the scriptures. The Samaritan woman at the well who goes and tells her whole village about Jesus. Mary Magdalene, the sinful woman who visits and cries and wipes Jesus' feet with her tears. The Syrophoenician woman who asks Jesus to heal her daughter. The bleeding woman who touches Jesus and receives healing and tells him her whole story while the synagogue leader has to wait to the side for Jesus to be done healing her. Meanwhile, his daughter dies until Jesus comes and helps him with his daughter. The tax collector who prays better than the Pharisees, even the little children. So who has been an unexpected good neighbor to you? How has a religious outsider loved you? When I gave this talk a few weeks ago, uh, it was a group of about 800 Christian healthcare professionals, most of whom are considerably more conservative than I am. So for them, this story was uncomfortable that I'm about to tell. Because they see trans people as religious outsiders or worse. And this is how Jesus, and the, this is how the Jews saw Samaritans at the time that Jesus was telling this story. Even for me, before the last few years, I didn't have a lot of exposure to people with different gender identities. But my good Samaritan is Tiger. Tiger has loved me well. Tiger is a person who many of us know in our church who identifies as transgender. Tiger gave me permission to share the story about them. Tiger uses they, them pronouns. They are married to their husband. They have two wonderful children who I teach in kids ministry, who know the scriptures well, who are kind and thoughtful. They ask questions about Jesus. They want to love. These kids call their parent mom because that's how they have known and experienced Tiger. But Tiger has gone out of their way to love my husband and me. Tiger was one of the most thoughtful, prayerful supports to my husband when his mother was in hospice last year and in the dying process. I remember hearing Tiger praying for Bill on the phone for various crises. And I have a vivid memory of one night when we were having a group of people over to our house, which is a common occurrence. And I personally, some of you may know this, am known to go out for a few minutes to where everyone is and then escape inside to work in the evenings. Maybe I'm a little intimidating. Hopefully it's more that I'm just introverted with an extroverted husband and not like rude or cold. But anyway, this is a time of intense stress at work. One of many crises had, had just occurred, I'm sure. So I'm sitting inside on my usual position on the couch. There's 25 people milling outside in the backyard on the other side of the sliding glass door. And who comes in but Tiger? I didn't know Tiger super well at this point, um, but Tiger walked up to me and said that they'd been thinking about me and wondered if they could pray for me. Like with Yvette, I felt seen by Tiger. It was a bit unnerving because, you know, 
Tiger's offering to care for me. I felt vulnerable. But Tiger prayed a beautiful prayer for me that night. And Tiger has gone above and beyond in stopping, showing mercy to me and to Bill. Some of you have experienced Tiger coming up and welcoming you at church. They often mention welcoming the people who maybe haven't felt welcome in other churches. And they pray for the queer kids, just like Dia did earlier today. They pray for the queer kids who aren't sure of their place in life, for their families. And Tiger mentioned to me, as I was discussing with him about sharing, sharing about them in this talk, that most of the queer people they know are just normal people who want to live normal lives with families, spouses, partners, and children. I think this is exactly who Jesus is talking about when he talks about the good, good neighbor, the good Samaritan. It's Tiger. So I, as I reflect in closing on the story of this road, of this religious outsider, this Samaritan, who stops for the half-dead person on the road, he did what the priest and the Levite couldn't do, he saw the beloved humanness of the person on the road. Maybe it was because he himself was not welcomed by Jews that he was especially aware of his own humanness, and thus he could see it in others. And my question for us is, are we able to see our own beloved humanness? Whether we are the, the neighbor who stops or we are the person lying on the road. Jesus calls us to love each other in the messiness of their suffering and in our own brokenness. It's hard and it's beautiful. And we need others to experience the love of Christ. We are all beloved people. The person who uses fentanyl on the street in front of my clinic is a beloved person. The older man with severe mental illness, such severe mental illness that he can't care for himself, that he sleeps naked in the street in his own excrement, he's a beloved person. That's my Jericho Road. The young immigrant from Central America who's trying to work and navigate our unfamiliar systems, who was so desperate to escape the violence and oppression in their home community, that they came here and are seeking services, are seeking work, are seeking a home. They are beloved people. Tiger is a person, not a cause. Jose may be grouchy, but he is a beloved person, loved by God. Your family member or my family member who disagrees with us politically, they are beloved children of God. The colleague we don't understand or don't like, who we've been hurt by or who we have hurt, they are beloved people of God. When we stick our feet in our mouth and say something really insensitive, we're still beloved people of God. We are part of broken systems that hurt people. We need gracious love from God, from others. We need to stop and rest and remember our humanness. We are human beings, not human doings. So neighbor love goes in two directions. It's loving others, it's others loving us. And when we treat anyone as other, as anything less than a beloved child of God, or when we treat ourselves as anything less than a beloved child of God, we're walking away from Jesus rather than toward him. And Jesus calls us to walk toward him to embrace our mutual humanity, to love and be loved in our messy humanness.
So I just want to ask us four questions to close. What do you need from God right now? Do you need Jesus to help you love someone else that's hard to love? Maybe a family member, maybe a colleague, maybe a client. Do you need to allow others to stop and care for you because you yourself feel like you're half dead by the side of the road? Who is your vet? Someone you've served who is also loving you? Who is your tiger? Someone who you thought of as an outsider, but who is loving you well? How can we follow Jesus? What is the road Jesus has for us right now? Help us to follow Jesus. Amen. Uh.